0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 491, air date January 7th, 2020. What's up, y'all? It's Hotep Jesus.
1: We are back with another epic discussion, big brain talk. Of course, I have another special guest for you today, as always. This guy is extra special. He's he's from uh, my home state, New Jersey. Uh and uh he's the end. Uh, but without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Shiva. How you feeling, bro?
0: I'm doing great, Hotep. Great to be here.
1: Awesome. Great to have you. You've been uh, a highly requested guest. Um My philosophy is with guests is I don't reach out to people usually, especially unless I know them usually. So one of our people reached out to you and you responded promptly. We got this thing set up and I'm very, very happy to be uh, you're here. Um, So let's just hop right into this thing. Right. Um, You uh, are from India. Right. Tell me your story. You know, as it progresses from India to the United States, and how you're getting amalgamated into our culture.
0: Well, it's, it's an interesting story. It's, it's many ways the American story uh, in, in a different way, in a different flavor, Hotep. But, you know, I grew up in two Indias. I grew up in India, you know, I was born in India in 1963. Um, India, as you may know, is a country within countries that, you know, it spans from thousands of years ago to modern times. In one scene, you can see. It's, it's a very layered country. So, you know, I grew up in Bombay uh, as a kid, which is, you know, you see people driving on Arma- Armani's, you know, or in, in Armani's and BMW's. And at the same scene, you see bullock carts and rickshaws and bicycles and beggars and slums in one scene. But I also grew up in a, you know, in a, in a village in deep South India for about at least a third or a third of my life because my grandparents were poor village farmers. You know, they used to work 16 hours a day. And But my grandmother was also a healer. She was a village healer. Uh, and in Bombay, I experienced what was called a caste system. You know, India still has this very unfortunate system with a lot of people in America, and the Indians in America don't talk about because most of them are from the upper caste. But India has a system of caste where you have the upper people, which were called Brahmins, and then you have different tiers. And then at the bottom, you have what are called untouchables or shudras. And I learned in a very... Uh, uh unfortunate way that i was one of the untouchable people because one day i was playing soccer with a kid and went out, went to his house and his mother treated me like i was like a leper told me to stand outside gave me water in a different cup didn't want me coming in and called me like the n-word the s-word shudra and uh you know so Is it
1: based I, upon the, the the darkness of your skin
0: it's based upon yeah i mean it's primarily there's a big correlation between darkness of skin and where you are, uh, you know, and uh, the caste system, uh, it's not always true, but by and large, it is true. Um, and this caste system goes back thousands of years. Initially, it was a guild system. You know, you had people who were blacksmiths and people were supposed to be teachers and, you know, but later on, it devolved into an unfortunate system of where if, you know, it was a birth lottery. If you were born here, you were a Brahmin. If you were born here, you were supposed to be a coconut picker, which is what our caste goal was for the rest of our lives. And so my parents were pretty extraordinary people, Hota, because my, uh, by any length of the imagination, my mother, who came from a broken family, the father ran away with the maid, was should have never even got educated for a woman of her background. Somehow, my mother uh, gets educated and uh, becomes a math teacher at a time in India when women weren't even getting educated, for that matter, someone of her caste. And my dad grew up in war torn Burma with bombs going off everywhere. Somehow. He made it back to India. His great-grandfather, who I remember well, had gone to Burma as an indentured servant, you know, to make his fortune. So you have two very interesting people who somehow meet in Bombay and that have me and my sister. But, you know, when I experienced that kid with that soccer situation, I asked my mother, you know, what was this about? And she said, oh, yeah, we're considered shudras. And when she was a child and she would go to the well, they would shoo her away like a pig, Hotep. So that is the, the reality of the Indian caste system. So... You know, that, so that I think spurred in me this kid who wanted to really understand political systems, you know, why there was oppression, uh, to want to become a fighter on some level. And the other part of me grew up in, in this village in India where my grandmother was a traditional healer, worked 16 hours a day, didn't charge anything for health, but she practiced a traditional India, uh, practice of Indian medicine where she could observe your face, predict what was going on in your body. And then she would come up with particular formulations for you. You know, it wasn't. It was what we would call today personalized medicine. So, you know, I grew up in both of these worlds, uh, witnessing this. So, uh, that, that was. Is that
1: kind of like maybe uh, a holistic healer? It's,
0: it's a holistic that, healer, but India even today has a system of medicine you can go to. Uh, you can practice Ayurveda, which is you know several thousand years ago. Yoga, Unani, which comes from. The uh, Persian system, Siddha, homeopathy. So in India, you can actually get all of these treatments. And the Siddha system or the Ayurveda system is 10,000 years old. You know, Western medicine's maybe a couple hundred years old. So, but these systems of medicine are practiced. People go to school for them. It's very very you know deep uh, training. It's not like something you just go and and learn. You know, you know just off the cuff. But my grandmother learned it in the oral tradition, and she never charged for anything. Every village in the, those days, Hotep, always had uh, someone like this, you know, who who did this um, for a uh, for a service. It was a noble service that you did. Oh yeah. So I grew, up, I grew up in both of these worlds, man, watching on the one day, understanding this caste system. And the other thing, seeing this woman with tattoos all over her arms, spitting tobacco, my grandmother working 15, 16 hours a day with leeches on her feet, you know, as a subsistence farmer who would heal people. So yeah. I was motivated. How was this woman with no degrees able to do this? And why was this caste system? And so that in, in that, you know, sort of environment is when my parents came here in 1970, uh, you know, uh, at a time, if you, you know, when we settled in Patterson, uh, uh, New Jersey. Uh, and you got to remember 1970s sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You have the Vietnam War going on. Uh, you have uh, hippies. You have uh, wild stuff taking place. So this little traditional Indian family gets on their little uh, spaceship and lands in the United States. So that was the environment that I, to ask you. So I came from India in this very rich, environment of contrast and then i came to the united states of contrast primarily african-american community right uh you know the old you know all the old 70s cars great motown music and growing up you know in a very tough neighborhood in patterson as a kid that's where i first started and then went to clifton and then persippany and then ended up in livingston uh, okay. So my parents kept moving As you know, parents who care about education Keep moving to the better public school systems That's how they got school choice in those days
1: Right, right, yeah. exactly So then what was Livingston like?
0: Well, Livingston was a lot different than Patterson And Clifton and <laughs> Persephone Livingston was pretty much predominantly Very wealthy, all Jewish kids um, Very different than Patterson Which was all African American kids And yet to learn how to fight, you know And yeah. I remember when I first went to Livingston You know, my parents had a Very moderate house. You know, whatever money they made, they did it for the public school system. And I was frankly intimidated because you know these people had a lot of wealth. You know, and my sister and I were the only dark kids in this school of four thousand kids. Uh, So it's quite. This is nineteen seventy-seven.
1: Did you You deal with any any you know racism or anything like that? Or
0: well, you know, I've been dealing with casteism all my life from India, and then here, I mean, I didn't deal with that really in Patterson. But I remember starting in Persephone, a uh, very interesting story. And I was, by the way, I wasn't just a nerd. You know, I was a really good student, uh, but also was on a thirteen and zero undefeated uh, halfback on a soccer team. Plus, okay. played baseball, could pretty uh, pretty fast. And some people said I could have gone at, at least into the semi pro. So I wasn't just a nerd. You know, I was pretty skilled at many things. And my parents brought me up that way. But what was interesting was in Persephone, um, you know, there was a chemistry exam that certain set of kids should be able to take to decide who could become the best uh, chemistry student. And what's was fascinating was that the chemistry teacher did not allow me to take that exam. Okay, forbid me. And so I remember my mom and dad who used to work very hard coming home and they heard, heard about this. And my mom, who was a fighter, got in the car and she said, we're going to go talk to that teacher. And they went in and they bitched that teacher out pretty hard. OK. And uh, and then he, you know, allowed me to take the exam and I and I, uh, you know, won. And that that has not changed, man. If I talk to you about the U.S. Senate race where I legitimately got on the debate stage, they wouldn't let me run. You know, just now we legitimately will talk about it in the vaccine issue. We, we had a whole thing yeah. set up. Uh, but my life has always been one of struggle. My mom said it doesn't matter if you get a B, you're going to have to get an A plus to be the equivalent of the kid who got a B or a C. Yeah. So that's been the reality, man. It has not changed, believe it or not, since India. Nothing has freaking changed. You have to fight for everything.
1: All right, so so let me ask you this, and then we're going to, you know, fast forward a little bit. How would these people in this Indian caste system view a black guy like myself?
0: They're totally racist, man. Look, we're, you know, I know you use, you know, there's the variation of the N-word we can use, but we're all considered that. You know, my friend, you know, uh, Michael, who's with Blacks for Trump, he goes, look, we're all, you know, the N-word, okay? Mm. So, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, if you look at my genetic profile, it probably goes back to Ethiopia, okay? Right. And if you look at, I mean, we are the Darkies, okay, of South India. And when I, to give you an idea, when I came to MIT in 1981, there were a lot of these Indian students. They would always try to figure out my last name because they wanted to figure out where I was because most of them were the Brahmins who came from India here. You know, on like robots, like AI robots, get their degree, get their PhD, get married, and then get settled, and they're done. They've achieved victory, glory in America. Okay. So many of my friends at MIT, in fact, most of them were poor blacks, poor whites, and poor Hispanics. Because those guys, and still to this day, most of them are freaking racist. You know, they see me, and they know that, holy shit, this kid is one of those darkies who we would never have wanted even to come here. He made it here. And he ain't being a good Indian, you know? I don't tilt my head. I don't sit in the lotus position. I don't talk like Deepak Chopra, right? Uh, And this bothers them significantly because they were all trained to be a Gunga Din or a Gandhi who we can talk about, but who took advantage of the Indian people. So you have a whole history of people um, who basically exploited people. So most of the Indians here, you know, I don't even consider them Indians because most of the Indians in India are who I consider Indians. Most of these guys... They may be nice people, but they're freaking racist. Oh wow! All right, so. By the way, is the stream coming in all right for you? Everything out all-
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it looks fine to me. Okay. I all got right. An cool. Excellent connection. Okay. This chat. Let me know if there's anything wrong with the stream. stream health looks looks fine on this side. I'm getting an excellent. Yeah, signal.
0: for for me, it's a little bit jittery, but maybe that's because it's going back and coming back. Yeah,
1: well, the audio always come through, and this will be available now okay. on soundcloud.com slash Jesus. thankfully. Cool. Now, I'm completely ignorant on uh, Indian culture, right? So, over here, you know, we just say, like, we're, you know, we're racist. <laughs> we say, oh, the Patels, right? Like, because everybody's got the last name Patel. You know, we're ignorant. So, tell me what's going on. Like, you know, there's a Shiva, the last name, and I'm sure this probably comes back to, like, royal kingdoms from ancient times or something like that, and there's Patels. What? How does this thing work? Why does everybody have the same last name for the most part? Is that part of the caste
0: system? You ask a great question. Look, the concept, first of all, you ask two questions, the last name and the caste system. You know, uh, if you look at American Indian culture, you know, the Native Americans here, they never had last names. It was like Sitting Bull, right? Or Sequoia, right? Or whatever, right? Or Geronimo. Um, The last name develops when you started creating property. The day someone said, I own this piece of land, then they had to add the last name. Okay. Now, South Indian Dravidian culture, which is all those people that go back thousands of years, in India at one time were the original natives of India called the Dravidians. Right. 2,000 years ago, an invasion took place, and some people argue about this, right? Um, and those people were pushed down, and but those people were the original people, very much like the indigenous people. They didn't have a concept of ownership or property, So, you didn't have last name. So, my name, and and by the way, you won't find a lot of Shiva's actually, and I'll explain that. So, my name was Shiva. My dad's name is Ayyadurai. My mom's name is Meenakshi. You see? There's no last name. When we came to this country, because we come from that Dravidian line, they said, what's your last name? So, my dad took my first name, and then he took his first name and made it my last name. So, it's Shiva Ayyadurai. Okay? Um, Okay. But... You have typically the people of North India, okay, a little bit more of the lighter guys, and, you know, you, it's, it's, it's a long, again, a longer discussion, but by and large, the caste system, people had caste names. Patel typically meant the guys from the business caste, okay? Oh, okay. You, you, sometimes you may see people using the word name Ayer, A-Y-E-R, I-Y-E-R. Those are people who consider themselves better than everyone else, the Brahmins, Okay. Okay. so when someone says my name is Manish Patel okay, Patel is actually his caste name, it's like blacksmith you see what I'm saying? Patels are typically the guys who run the little stores right? little traders and businessmen and that's typically they were the business people of India, of the group in India from Gujarat, Gujaratis okay so in India, my mom used to say you can get discriminated seven different ways in America around three, so you can get discriminated by where you're from what color you are, what language you speak, what caste you are, whether you're female or male, uh, etc., right? So the Patels, which you probably have a lot down in Jersey City, Hoboken, etc., the guys running the shops, the initial wave of Indians who came here in in the late 60s and early 70s where the the United States did merit-based immigration, let in all the really smart people who had brains in terms of skills, engineers, doctors, scientists, And in many ways, that was a brain drain. That's how my parents came here. Sort of the best of the best came here. The second wave was some of those people invited their cousins and et cetera, right? Who are people who, many of them didn't really have skills, right? But they could run, you know, they could trade, run a convenience store, those kind of people. This is by and large a second wave of immigration that took place. Um, And that's why you have, you know like in Bart Simpson, whatever they, I think they took, took down the guy up or something, but yeah. it was that second wave of Indians. Okay. Okay. And then you have now the current group of Indians, you know, some of them who are coming here for work, you know, on these H1B visas. And then you have the new generation of Indians who are actually from here, right? The second generation who were born here, but that name Patel um, is a relatively common name. It's a caste name, but you won't find a lot of names like Ayodure, right? Right. Because we are from that, uh, you know, lower caste Dravidian tradition where we had to, we didn't have the concept of last name.
1: Okay. Yeah. Got you. Perfect. Great. Excellent education. I'm gonna hop into in some super chats, and then what I want to do is I kind of just want to say what I want to do is talk about the event that happened today that you sp- uh, spoke about earlier. Then let's talk about uh, vaccines, then we'll talk about your uh, political career. But first, let me uh, hop into uh, the Super Chats. John Lemley, as usual. What's up, John? Uh, $20 Super Chat. He said, I can tell it's going to be a very interesting conversation. I'm going to have to catch a replay. Thank you, John. Replay will be available here as well as SoundCloud now. So you guys can listen to that in audio. Nick Barnes, $5 Super Chat. Thanks, guys. Cool. So today, something crazy happened, right? Like they canceled your event.
0: Well, they attempted to. They attempted to cancel it. We're still going to do it in New Jersey. Um, you know, uh, uh, the broader context is this. there's Right now, there's a, an important event taking place in, in New Jersey. Um, and that important event is there's a bill uh, that is coming up for vote in the Senate, which is about um, uh, the exemptions, right, which is people want to eliminate your right to get exemption through religious exemptions, right? So right. that's coming up in, in uh, New Jersey right now.
1: For vaccines. For
0: vaccines. Uh, Basically
1: saying that, you know, it used to be where, you know, if they said, hey, you know, the school wanted a vaccine, you could say, I'm exempt because of religious reasons. And exactly. Now they're saying, there are no exemptions. Right. You must take these drugs.
0: Exactly. Well, yeah. Or, or, well, no. So what they're saying is, before, if you had a child, and you said, "Look, I don't want to give my child vaccines. You could go get a religious exemption. They had to accept it." They want to remove what they consider a quote-unquote loophole. All right? So that's so about a couple of weeks ago, you know, the bill went through the house and the senate or the assembly and the senate. The assembly voted for it, which means uh, people said, "Yes, we're going to eliminate religious exemptions." Then it goes to the senate, right? And then it goes to the governor for signature. Just so basic legislative process. So when it went to the Senate, uh, you know, the bill was in committee and it had to come out of committee to go to the vote. Now, two Democrats, Lagan uh, Lagon, and another guy, Gopal, Indian guy, uh, were going to crush it in the committee. They were, they were going to uh, vote. So it didn't go to the Senate for vote. Well, they got at the last minute thrown off the committee by the president of the Senate by a guy named Steve Sweeney. So he forced them to take it. That's uh, the, by the way, the Senate President and the Speaker of the House always have all the power. Okay, they have massive amounts of power. At the last minute, they can completely arm twist people. Yeah. So that's why event to the vote in the Senate, and they didn't have enough votes. They they were going to lose it, so they didn't take the vote. That and and a big reason for that was because of the massive protests out there. Okay, remember politicians. Do this. They watch which way the wind blows. In other states like California and in Maine and New York, all these sort of—we'll talk about it. These people who try to play both sides told people to quiet down, simmer down, don't, don't, don't protest. And that's why they all lost there. When I got involved, I said escalate the movement, protest like hell because that's how you win. And they followed that advice, and there was massive protest. Five, six thousand people showed up. These. Congressman basically scared the bejesus out of them, so they weren't going to vote in favor. It was very close. So the Senate President decided not to call the vote because he was going to lose. Hotep, okay. So uh, now the legislative session ends on January 14th, which is coming up a couple okay. of weeks. So they have a couple of so the so the President of the Senate Sweeney, who I invited to an educational forum. Which I was going to host in New Jersey. Um, he has been squeezing the arm, right? Twisting the arm of people because he needs 21 votes. 20 senators, he needs 21 votes. So he's out there twisting people's arms, promising them stuff, money, all sorts of stuff. Committee assignments. You see, there's all this jockeying. That's going on right now in New Jersey. Sweeney and the big pharma guys are twisting people's arms. Because if New Jersey falls, think about what this means. New Jersey, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, a lot of investment there by Big Pharma. If they fail, it's going to be a domino. People are going to say, you know what? That's how we win. We do what Dr. Shiva said. We protest on the ground. We build a movement, not just, you know, suck ass to legislators all day. That's what they want you to do. So this is why it's a momentous event, politically and from a science standpoint, so what I did was about a couple of, about a week, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, um, I still, I, I went to Livingston High School, you know? Just to give you the background, when I was at Livingston, remember, I said I was the only kid there, the only non-Jewish kid. I had a lot of Jewish friends, but the history is Jewish people always consider they're the chosen people. You know, I grew up in that environment. Every time I'd succeed, a lot of jealousy there. You know, I, I like my mom said, get an A plus to compete with a B. It's just the facts, Okay. Yeah, uh, it's just just true, you know, but yeah. I, I excelled there. And about four or five, and by the way, Jason Alexander went to Livingston High School. Chris Christie went there, the governor, Harlan Coben. It's a very great public school. I was very fortunate to have amazing teachers. My high school chemistry teacher taught me the scientific method, Gerald Walker. He was awarded the presidential award or uh, you know, for, for teaching. Great teachers. This is in the 70s when teachers really cared, held three or four jobs, you know, Yeah. So I went into this amazing high school. That's where the school changed the rules, so I could go to Newark and create the world's first email system, which I did as a fourteen-year-old kid. It was because of some really good high school teachers who allowed uh, the rules got changed. People would fight. You know, my, um, you know, as as I've shared with you, when I was fourteen, I finished up calculus, and my high school Livingston had no more courses to offer me. So, so I got a um, uh, an opportunity to go to NYU and anyone listening, these are the facts of the invention. Hold on. Of, hold on wait, yeah. wait,
1: wait, 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 wait one second. You were 14 and finished basically all the courses available. How do you do that? Were you independently studying?
0: So here's the thing in Tiffany, when I was in eighth grade there, uh, we had a great teacher. This is before the department of education screwed up education. He had the math program that he gave you the standard curriculum but if you wanted, so you still, if you wanted Excel, you could go. He listed out the whole syllabus. So I finished up two years in one year. Okay, yeah. analytic yeah. geometry, and, and so by the time I went, I transferred to Livingston in my ninth grade. His good friend was a principal at the junior high school in Livingston, and he said Shiva is a very extraordinary student. Change the rules so you he can go to high school and study calculus. So when I was in ninth grade, they got a special bus. And I got shipped to the high school to study with the seniors and I finished calculus. So I only had some humanities courses left, Otep, okay? Okay. So after 10th grade, there's no more courses. I've I've gone through all the science and math courses. So I had, you you know, I love still English and history, you know, had those left. And my mother that year in 78 saw a little paper clipping. She was working in Newark as a programmer at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. And she had seen this little... A paper clipping in a New York newspaper which said a professor in Newark, Henry Mullish, was going to invite 40 students to come to Newark and study computer programming, computer science, in like a Navy SEAL-like intensive program. Forty students across the country would be selected. I was actually one year younger. I applied anyway and was very fortunate to get accepted. Okay. Okay. So, and my mom would drop me off, you know, Newark, over at the PATH station and I would take the train in, six in the morning. As a 14-year-old kid walking through Washington Park, people selling drugs it was a wild scene, man. You know, <laughs> my first day in Newark, two guys come busting out of the bank thing, uh, stealing. You know, that's what that's what Bleecker Street, Washington Street was like. You know, you walk through Washington Park, people be like, "Try before you buy," you know. <laughs> and this 14-year-old kid's walking through there, and it was wild. Was and and that's where I went, and I graduated top of the class. I mean, you ta- you learned seven programming languages. Uh, basic COBOL, art speak snowball these are old languages you know fortran and the professor there was a guy called henry mullish you can look him up he settled in in uh, israel a couple of last year this year actually i went to to his memorial service and i gave a talk so like, no
1: c there was no c language yet
0: nope this is before c okay before c 1978 a computer filled your room and my room big mainframes you wrote on punch cards but I uh, you know, did, and I also learned a programming language for graphics where you could do beautiful art pictures. Ended up winning that art award too. Oh, so good. anyway, finished top of the class, come back as sort of a downer. Now you're coming back into high school. So what do I do? I'm, I'm, I'm a trained programmer. We, you went through like a Navy SEAL type program, educated by, at the Coriant Institute of Mathematical Sciences, which is one of the elite universities. A high school teacher in Livingston High School, Stella Alexi actually just passed away. She fought with the superintendent of schools, Mel Klein, and she said, this kid needs a different program or he's going to get bored. And they figured out a way that they arranged a bus so I could travel to Newark, and I was given a full-time job by a guy who's still there, Dr. Les Michelson. He gave me a full-time job, so I had humanities courses, and I'd literally go 8 to 16 hours, and I'd work sometimes 2 in the morning in Newark. A lot of people still today in those days were afraid to go into Newark. You know, I wasn't. And my friends became the secretaries, the janitors, people, everyone there. They love me. I love them. And Dr. Michelson, uh, initially I did some work on sudden infant death syndrome, why babies were dying in their sleep. I built some algorithms, what you would call AI today, to figure out when a baby was sleeping, a pattern, to figure out when it would stop breathing. That's called an apnea. Mm-hmm. So I initially did that. But Michelson noticed I had really good skills at programming and he gave me a big challenge. Now, many people over the age of 40 will remember in the 1970s or even now many organizations the way they they had two communication systems for collaboration you're in your office I'm in let's say we're both doctors right we used to use a phone there was another system there's no cell phones yet there's no social media they had the thing called the inter-office mail system and that inter-office mail system was a very complex system now they had these big microcomputers were just coming mainframes you could send simple messages, you know, one line messages, text messages. That's not what I'm talking about. But on those big um, uh, uh, in those systems, every secretary was always a the servant of a, a doctor or researcher. And she, and she was always a, a woman. Right. Always on a desktop where they had the inbox, which is a wooden box and outbox, which was another wooden box drafts folder behind her. There were things called filing cabinets with folders paper clips, a thing called a typewriter where you would take paper and you would put it in it, bond paper and you type a letter. Now these memos had a very particular format, to, from, subject, and then sometimes if I was sending a letter to you and I wanted to hire somebody, right, I may CC my boss, okay? So you literally put two two pieces of paper, put a carbon paper and you type away. The second paper is called a carbon paper, and let's say I attach the resume. You would attach a resume, attach a paper clip. You would put it in these envelopes, try it together, and they had these pneumatic tubes. You'd put it in and it would shoot around the office. Okay? Oh, yes. This was the inter-office mail system. It was a okay. very complex. If you had to do 20 cc's, the secretary would be typing away 10, 20 times, you see? Yeah. So I was asked to convert that entire system, which was the medium of collaboration, if you were going to hire someone, grant proposals, you'd attach it, you'd send it around the office, people would review it, they'd redline it. This is how work got done. It was the powerhouse of every major organization, from the office of the president to the office of a engineering school, medical school. So I was asked to convert that entire system as a 14-year-old kid. I wrote 50,000 lines of code in Fortran in 8K of memory, so I had to do memory segmentation. I mean, wild shit I did back then, man. Yeah. And I called that system email. It's not an obvious term. Why did I call it email? Because the operating system only allowed five characters. A term never used before in the English language. (laughs) Wrote all the code. Every feature that you see today called it email. Won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards, which was called the Baby Nobles of the Day. Uh. All right? Uh. And was a very humble, good Indian. Okay? (laughs) I go to MIT in 1981. On the front page of the MIT newspaper... They highlighted three kids, me and another kid out of the 1,041 students. So think about it. You got to be pretty, you know, supposedly smart to go to MIT. But out of those 1,041, I was one of the kids highlighted for creating this email system. I remember seeing that Hotep. I was trained to be so freaking humble, man. I said, oh, that's interesting. And I put it down and I saw the paper clipping of it. Okay. Okay. I went, I got elected student body president. Freshman student body president in that year. And I I was invited to the president of MIT's house who was a guy called Paul Gray, who was a science advisor to Reagan at the time, Ronald Reagan. And he'd heard about me and he said, and he pulled me aside. He goes, Shiva, you know, it's too bad that the Supreme Court doesn't understand software. They don't even allow software patents. You see, the, the guys in Washington thought software was like writing something like a script or a movie. They didn't understand that it was... Like a digital machine, okay right. they didn't understand that so however, what dr. Gray said was you should copyright it because in 1980, which I didn't know, the Computer Software Act of 1980 was passed by Congress, which said that you could use copyright law to protect software inventions and it wasn't just putting a Chotep with a circle you had to right. send in I had to send in all my fifty thousand lines of code went back and forth. there's no internet. You have to fill out these forms. I had no lawyer like Bill Gates, right? <laughs> my father wasn't a lawyer. I did it all on my own. And on August 30th, 1982, when I was about 17 or 18, the United States government officially recognizes me as the inventor of email. I have the copyright.
1: Okay. Okay? Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. So I wrote all the code, uh-huh. called it email. I have the freaking copyright. Uh. There's no freaking controversy who invented email.
1: So uh- so So how much do you get paid for that?
0: Great Which question. Great question. Copyright law only protects the literal code. If you change, it's like if you wrote, okay. if you wrote a story of uh, a, a young twelve year old boy and a girl fighting and the family not liking them, and you happen to call it uh, Jason and Jean, but there's Romeo and Juliet, right? So copyright law doesn't protect ideas. It was only in 1994 to the Federal Court of Appeals, said uh, the, uh, said that software is a digital machine, okay? So I don't get a penny, but had s- patent law been allowed then, I'd be a gazillionaire and no one would be questioning about the invention of email because no one questions whether Bill Gates invented DOS, which he didn't, by the way, but because he made gazillions, they think he did it, or yeah. whether Mark Zuckerberg really was the first to invent Facebook, Right. Yeah. But I was ahead of my times in many ways because the laws were behind, you know. But I made money other ways. But my point is, email was invented in Newark, New Jersey. Number okay. one, it was invented not by the military-industrial complex. It was invented by a kid trying to help secretaries, women, who all the other mainly white people in their little white lab coats thought were stupid and could never use a computer. I helped them go from the keyboard. Uh, from the typewriter to the keyboard. That's what was right. done. It was a civilian application. Now,
1: how does that how does that proliferate? H- like, you know, yeah. to go from Nork to... Well, you know, well yeah, Newark.
0: so here's the thing. I am not saying that someone would not have invented email if it wasn't me. Someone right. would have. It's like someone would have invented the airplane, right, if the Wright brothers right. didn't do it, right? right? It was a convergence of office, computing, everything was coming together, but I was the first to do it. Now, when I created it... I put all my code, everything I did in the Library of Congress. Now, you got to understand, today when Apple creates something or IBM, right, what do they do? They basically are very, very um, are very, very uh, non-disclosure agreements, secrecy, right? I mean, when we were creating this, we did it, you know, when Dr. Michelson's lab was fully open, I gave seminars, man. I said 50, 100, 200 people show up. We didn't say, oh, we're making email. HP was there, right? IBM would show up, right? We were sh- totally sharing everything. We weren't like, Steve Jobs, holy shit, who's going to steal my stuff? We were open, open architecture. Okay. So if you look at the history of this, it goes into the Library of Congress in 1982. Shortly thereafter, 1984 is when Eudora comes out, right? And AOL, etc. You it's not. I don't have to prove that they took my code, but the fact was I was the first to create email. Call it email of the copyright. Just like if the Wright brothers didn't
1: use it outside of that office.
0: Oh, it was used. Well, it was used not only in that office across three networks. Remember, uh, Rutgers Medical School was not only in that office. It was over at New Brunswick,
1: right?
0: Camden campus, Piscataway campus. I mean. You don't need the internet, by the way, to use email. This is a myth. In the old days, between 1978 from the time when I invented email up until 1992, email was an inner office application. People used to put a bunch of lands together and have these products running. Yeah. If you, In 1993, when I used to ask people in seminars how many people have an email account, out of a room of 1,000 a, a people, only two people had an email account. In 1993, email became a consumer application. Why? Because the World Wide Web came. Right. And that was a front end to the internet. And uh. and that's when Hotmail and Yahoo and all those guys came. Mm. But there's a lot of... Uh, so anyway, th- so email was an op- business application. Why? Because it came from the inter office mail system. Yeah. There's a direct line from there. Now, in... I never spoke about this, didn't want credit for any of this. However, in uh, 2011, my mother was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. Three months to live in a beautiful suitcase hotel. She had saved everything. Okay? And she had saved everything. The editor of Time Magazine, the only journalist to review it, he went through everything and he wrote an article. You can look it up. November 11, 2011, uh, 2011, called The Man Who Invented Email. 11, 11, 11, 2011. Three months after that, the Smithsonian contacted me. They said, oh, my God, we didn't know this was here. You have a treasure trove of documents, and it was them in the Computer History Museum. A good friend of mine said, put it in the Smithsonian. So on February 16th, 2012, they held a beautiful donation ceremony. There's pictures there, there's video, and it went into the Smithsonian. That evening, a young African-American reporter for the Washington Post interviewed me, and and she wrote an article called Dr. Shiva Ayyadurai, Honored as the Inventor of Email by the Smithsonian. And that's when the shit hits the fan. Okay? Because it was like a new skull was found in Africa. You see? (laughs) When it went into the Smithsonian, all these quote-unquote historians who had already written the history of the email that it was done by some white dude with... Uh, who look like a nerd. You see, you have to look like a nerd. You can't be a good-looking Indian guy who lifts weights and is strong. There's a segregation. You have to look stupid and look all fucked up. Excuse my language, right? Then you're a nerd. Then you're qualified. This guy was like a casting call. Beard, glasses, and he did not write email. He, he All he did was he vote, wrote a caveman version of Reddit attaching text to the bottom of a file, did 15 minutes of change to FT, to an FTP program, Okay. What happened was Raytheon, a missile defense company, had bought the company he worked at called BBN. And if you went to their website in 2012, the front of their website said Raytheon, inventor of email. Why? Because Raytheon was moving from the defense world, which missiles were missile sales were coming down into cybersecurity, which is a two hundred and seventy billion dollar market. So when my stuff went into Smithsonian, and they put that guy, that nerd's picture up. Okay? He was their little mascot. So when my stuff went in, I threw a wrench into their bullshit. And it's all documented. So what you see is this this uh, screwball historian, a you know, a frankly a, a racist. Okay, and we should discuss racism because there is racism. Republicans think there isn't and the liberals think they own racism, okay? There is real racism in this country and it's never discussed. and, and because they never let the darkies discuss racism. It's only for whiteies to discuss race, racism, unfortunately. Uh-oh. Okay? <laughs> no, because they don't want the real discussion of race. Because it's, yeah. don't use the N-word, don't do this, pray to Martin Luther King, therefore you're not racist. Right? But if you break on Malcolm X, if you use the N-word in the right way, they don't want you to do that. Okay? Yeah. And so, what's happened is, when it went into the Smithsonian, it was, holy shit. Email came from Newark, New Jersey, by this darkie, 14-year-old, and he ain't a good Indian. Okay, he talks back. That's what bothered them more than anything. And what was interesting for me was, you have to understand, Hotep, up until that point, I've always fought for others. I never had to fight. You know, you you can find a picture of me as a 19-year-old kid burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. MIT had tens of millions of dollars investments in apartheid South Africa. I I led one of the biggest protests. And we force MIT to get rid of those investments, but it was a massive defiant protest. I made sure food service workers at MIT got better wages. I was a guy who fought against Monsanto. When I went to the, Ind- when I went back to India in 2007 on a brief scientific research, I was recruited by the Indian government to run the largest scientific center. I exposed corruption in India under death threats had to leave. But this time when these people called me an asshole, a dick, a fraud. It's quite amazing. Gizmodo called me all these names. In fact, one report said this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. This is 2012, man, so everyone should be listening to this.
1: Wait, where was that
0: published? It was in a blog. So go look oh, Gizmodo? at... Go, what's that? On Gizmodo? Well, Gizmo. they referred to Gizmodo. The, the shit that happened is, and I was teaching in 2012 one of the most important and popular... I was teaching at MIT, not like Elizabeth Warren taking $350,000, running my company and teaching an amazing course called Systems Visualization. And when it went into the Smithsonian, thousands of calls come into MIT saying, this guy's a fraud. This guy's a liar. He needs to be fired. Because I dared defend that I did invent email in Newark. You see? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it was quite wild, man. I couldn't believe it. All my four degrees didn't mean shit. No one at MIT defended me. Why? Because the narrative is, when you go to MIT, then you're anointed, you get, you see what I'm saying? You get hooded, like the priesthood. Then you are an inventor. And you gotta understand, between 1981 and 2003, when I'm at MIT, I won every major award. I won the Alaranta Science Award, I won the Fulbright Scholarship, I was on the front page of MIT, because it was good to have the symbol of inclusivity and diversity. I was being a good darky, you see? A good Indian. No, seriously, man, let's talk about that, it's what it is. But yeah. when I dared say that email was not invented at MIT, that it was done in Newark, that throws a wrench into this long bullshit that all great inventions must come out of Silicon Valley or MIT or dropouts out of Harvard, that it sure couldn't come out of Newark by a 14-year-old Indian kid. But if you're Mozart and you're six years old and you have blue eyes and blonde hair, that's cool. Uh-oh. Okay? No, no, pe- white people, if you're listening, you got to understand this. And by the way, a young white guy... Is the one who created TV. It's not about race alone. It's about where it comes from. Philo Farnsworth, a very smart kid in Franklin, Idaho, a town of a little village, is the one who saw how the cows did this pattern. He used that to create the rat. He created TV. Sarnoff stole it from him. Now, he didn't have to deal with the race issue. He just had to deal with the issue. It didn't come out of big business, but they also crucified him for 60 years. Now, there's a statue of him in Washington. In my case, it's race, class, caste, all of it. Yeah. So, I got a much more difficult problem Yeah. because you can't have... Now, in the middle of this, it gets even more interesting. There's a guy, Walter Isaacson, who wrote the biography on Steve Jobs. In the middle of this controversy, Isaacson writes this book, called Innovators of the Digital Revolution, okay? Now, you would think email would be in there. Innovators of the Digital Revolution, it's being written in 2014. Not one mention of email, and everyone in that book is all white guys. In fact, one white woman. And in the book, he says all great inventions come out of the military-industrial-academic complex. And he, and, and he attributes one of the great guys was Vannevar Bush. Vannevar Bush was the president of MIT, in 1940s and he's the one who created raytheon that same company which was denying the fact that i invented email mm. so what i'm saying is the invention of email is a very important story it's not just about me but it's about who is a creator and who is not it's about who is determining who's the innovator and who's not it's a freaking caste system mm. and mit and all a small set of people think they can anoint. When you're in the club, when you're not in the club. I was in the club when I was getting all the awards at MIT, but when I said email was done and talked, spoke about the facts, they unleashed hell on me. Gizmodo wrote three defamatory articles, and I couldn't find any lawyer to represent me. They'd say, ha, 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 Al Gore, ha, ha, ha. Is that what you're saying? You know, the Al Gore invented internet. Finally, I found a lawyer, Charles Harder, who had just sued Gizmodo for putting out that sex video of Hal Hogan. And he had won $140 million and it was on appeal. I went to Charles. Charles looked at all my stuff. He goes, Jesus Christ, you invented email. It's obvious. He took my case on contingency. We sued for $35 million. 30 days after I sued, Gizmodo claimed bankruptcy. Gets even more interesting. I get appointed to be the chairman of the bankruptcy committee to sell Gizmodo by the banks or Gawker. So it was great karma. We sold him. I got a million bucks. And they were forced to remove those three articles. Okay, then Google sponsored another idiot to try to sue me. I mean, not to sue me, to again defame me. We sued him and we settled recently. He didn't like settling. He was talking free speech nonsense. Free speech is right, but truthful free speech. The First Amendment doesn't promote you to defame people and lie and call people all sorts of names. It's truthful free speech. So anyway, what I'm trying to say uh, is that I've always been fighting also, right? In addition yeah. to being the warrior for science, you know, being a good scientist, I've also been a fighter. And the email controversy was beautiful because it forced me. It was a very interesting journey, man. It's very deep because it's easy to fight for other people. But when I had to say shit, you know, I was at a point. Oh, my God. It's like I've talked to people who've been raped. They said sometimes they think they did something wrong. And I said, well, maybe I didn't invent email. Maybe I'm lying. And then I had one of my students at MIT, he went and read every manuscript written prior to nineteen seventy eight. And we find a document. This is why I believe there's a God. And the document is written by this guy, David Crock of Shit, or Crocker, that's what we call him. And he had written in nineteen seventy seven that at this time there is no it is impossible to create at the interoffice mail system in electronic form. And he was the big theorist of the time writing a 1977 RAND report. RAND is one of the big military organizations. So it's incredible that I've even had to fight this much. Mm. I wrote the code, called it email. I have the freaking copyright. That's why if this was done at MIT, it probably would have been acceptable. Yeah. Maybe if I was a blonde-haired kid growing in a rich suburb like Livingston and I was white with a certain name, maybe there would be no issues. Yeah. So we need to wake up to the fact it's not even race anymore, it's caste. Yeah. We have a caste system in this country. It just so happens I happen to be dark. Okay. And hap- but I'm telling you, if I was from Newark and I was a white kid, and it would be the same thing, just like Philo. My issue is I have multiple layers, like my mom said, of oppression I deal with. And the problem <laughs> they have is that uh, I'm not a good Indian. That's what really bugs them. You see, most guys would, okay, okay, I didn't invent email, okay, very good, bye-bye, right? That's what I would have done, man. Okay, okay, you're right, right, okay, okay, I'm not going to raise, right? But I wasn't willing to do that, man. I'm an American. I'm a New Jersey kid, and I learned how to fight from working-class people that I grew up with who taught me how to, you know, mow lawns, how to paint, how to work freaking hard, I grew up with everyday people in that university who are, you know, most of them African-Americans who I knew had nothing. And every time I remember my grandparents in 1975, when I left India, who lived in huts, you know, who had nothing. Those are my people. So I don't give a damn about what these people think. So uh, that's why these people are so afraid when a guy with an MIT PhD who's done the work, who's won all the awards, who's an esteemed scientist, starts speaking out against vaccines. Yeah. Because it's their worst freaking nightmare.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jersey, Jersey, we breed a different pedigree of people. Speaking of Jersey, Chad Lemoyne in the Super Chats, 499, he says, this whole story is just a pump-up Jersey. Shaking my head. Just kidding, hotel. Yo, Jersey's on the map. Chad, you gotta well, watch out, man.
0: Well, well, here's the thing. You know, if you look at New Jersey, when I was working in that medical school, I was 14. People, I was... You know, it was a small lab. I was treated like an adult hotel by Dr. Michaels. And the rule was I would come in. I'd come in with my briefcase, organize. I had my own desk. I worked. The the rule was I'd be treated like an equal by all these other people. There there was a physicist, Phil Goldstein. There was, uh, you know, a lot of great people in that lab. And a lot of smart people. New Jersey, that New York area, has a lot of freaking smart people. But they haven't done their marketing well. So MIT and Silicon Valley gets all this credit. But that area has produced some, in, in addition to the invention of email, you know? But the problem is people are embarrassed to look at their own greatness sometimes, you know? New Jersey has a lot of great people and down-to-earth people. Boston, Massachusetts, is one of the most racist places. It's overrated. You know, seriously, when I came to MIT in, two, two, uh, in my second when I came to my freshman class, I was sitting around studying computer science. already done all this stuff. by It's like a mechanic who's built super cars and he's studying mechanical engineering. It's like nonsense. Yeah. But and what I also noticed was many of these people are trained to look and think what intelligence is. I would see kids at MIT, Hotep, who'd come in as a freshman year, normal-looking kids. Suddenly, by the end of freshman year, they have weird nasally voices making weird is I'm being serious, man. Like as though you had to behave like a nerd to be intelligent. Yeah. You see what I'm saying?
1: You wanted to be part of that club. Yeah,
0: it's like the club, right? You have to speak like this, talk like this, then you're a nerd. Then you're intelligent. Yeah. So I, you know, it, you know, I, I moved off campus. I lived in Dorchester, an all-black neighborhood, for, for yeah. two of my years at MIT because I couldn't deal with this nonsense. Okay. Right, right. But. And and no one even told me about MIT. No one at Livingston told me until two weeks before I applied, and it wasn't them. My mom had helped these two women who got one of them got thrown out by her husband. She met at the stop and shop or the A and P. She let him stay in our house in the basement apartment we had, and one of them had a boyfriend who said, "Shiva, you should go to this place called MIT." And I was I applied to Stevens and I think Princeton at that time. And I said, what's this? He goes, it's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He showed me the application, which is Dome. I said, this looks like a mental institute. It looked crazy. And I wasn't going to apply. Look, something about it didn't strike me right. So he came back two weeks, essentially two days before the application was due, and he wouldn't leave. So I took a pencil and I filled out the application. I got accepted. And I remember coming to MIT to this day, walking up the 77 Mass 7. I saw these people who looked really sick, like physically sick. And I went back and I said, I'm not going here. These people look ill. And my then my high school teacher, because you know the teachers in Livingston get credit, you know, that's the 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 high schools are rated by who they place where. Then they suddenly started, Oh no, you should go to MIT. And they and they convinced me to go because Boston was a cool city. And that's what brought me to MIT. But the day I came to MIT, man, it wasn't about science I I learned how to fight systems I learned about systems I started doing medical research I learned you know that's what I came to Boston about and I right you know
1: so so I want to just talk about race really fast and then we're gonna I just want to touch on it really really quick because you made a great point you said uh Republicans want to act like there's no racism and liberals want to have a monopoly over it why Why do Republicans or the conservatives want to dodge the race question and act like it doesn't exist and minimize
0: it? Because they feel guilty, okay? because they haven't addressed it and they know that it does exist, but they don't know how to deal with it. Right. And because they don't they haven't put the intellectual rigor into understanding it, they let the liberals who are fake intellectuals own it. So what's happened is the liberals basically come in and they say, don't use the can I say N.I.G.G.A. on this thing or no? You say it. Okay. I'm not going to say the ER, but yeah. if you don't use a nigger word, then you're not racist, right? Okay. That's that's what they say. Okay, so that's their check mark. Okay, you're not racist now. Okay, uh, you must bless down to Martin Luther King as a great fighter, not Malcolm X. Okay, check. Now you're not a racist, right? Check. You believe in affirmative action. Now you're not a racist, okay? But the reality is, as I've said, using the N word in many ways, we're all niggas on the white liberal plantation. That's what we are. That's what we become because the white liberals are the biggest racists. When I, when I ran for U.S. Senate as an independent, I put only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian and I put Warren's headdress. It was a great campaign. We would be distributing flyers and all the white liberals who all look like Warren would call me a racist. I said, you know what? You're a racist because Elizabeth Warren used race to advance herself. That's racism putting a headdress using the n-word whether i believe in martin luther king or not or that's not racism you see the white liberals have bounded racism into this little box and as long as you're in that box and you're not racist meanwhile they're the biggest racist they're the ones who wanted to deny the fact that a dark-skinned guy in, in new jersey denied uh, invented email all the white working-class trumpers actually bl- know the facts they, i don't see them attacking me yeah you see what i'm saying? it's the white liberals as, as Malcolm X said the northern wolves they're the racists and if you look at Massachusetts it's the center of the center of the center of racism because when the British lost they didn't get on a boat and go back to London they became embedded in here at institutions like Harvard okay and we'll come back to that but the point is so the Republicans and they, the Republicans do this on every freaking issue. They don't fight climate change hard because they don't because they don't. So they let the liberals own it. They don't fight the gun issue hard because they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to fight the vaccine issue hard because they don't know how to do it. And then when a guy like me comes to help them, they want to deny it because internally uh, they're part of the establishment, the establishment Republicans. When Trump comes, they want to deny him because he's willing to throw bombs at them. Right. But the bottom line is the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment are one. Okay? The liberals are just smarter. The establishment Republicans are just stupid. Okay? That's what the reality is. So that's what you have. So what you have is there is racism. And the racism I'm talking about is the fact that we never built infrastructure in inner cities. That's racism. When the civil rights movement took place, the Kennedys selected Martin Luther King. Great speech, don't get me wrong, but it was a freaking circus. Malcolm and all those people were pushed to the sidelight. In India, there were people who wanted to have a good good bloody revolution and kick out the British, which would have been good. Instead, they brought in this guy Gandhi, who was a racist, imposed him on the people of India. He manufactured a quote-unquote transfer of power. There was no Indian independence. Okay, And India had 70 years of suffering and uh, black, white men with crowns left. Meanwhile, brown men with white hats took over. So in every place, that's what's happened. You go, go look at Africa. So the white liberals, now it's a multiracial aristocracy of liberals, including the Obamas, are all very good at perpetuating real racism. So the inner cities after civil rights never got addressed. We never built infrastructure there. We gave people some bones. Okay, we'll let a few of you into college, and we know you're going to fail anyway, okay? So we'll give you some programs, and then they created a black bourgeois, a couple of Obamas and Malik Obama and those kind of people, right? Or Barack Obama. They didn't uplift the vast majority of black folks or poor white folks by putting infrastructure in, which would have cost them. So over and over again, what you see is a white liberals, and now it's a multiracial aristocracy of liberals, do not want to under, do not want to address racism because they know they are the real racists, and they do race their racist towards poor whites, they're racist towards poor blacks, poor everyone. Right? It's a yeah. caste issue now. Yeah. It's an aristocracy now, man. Yeah. So when I, you know, I'm running for U.S. Senate. I'm a Republican running. Governor Bill Weld is a Republican. Charlie Baker, Bill Weld, the Republican, has endorsed Joe Kennedy, who's a Democrat. They're so afraid of the darky, man. Not only the darky, but the fact that I'm an untouchable from India. You see, that, so this is going to be an interesting election. That's why I think we're living in amazing times, because it's an opportunity to realize we live in a caste system. My parents thought they were leaving the Indian caste system, but we've entered the American caste system. It's no okay. longer Democrats versus Republicans. It's about, are you in the in crowd or are you in the out crowd? You know Where,
1: where are you running? What state-
0: Massachusetts. Massachusetts, okay, damn Massachusetts, hard, man, hard. it's a, it's a Massachusetts is the epicenter of the swamp of the swamp, and Harvard is a sewer that feeds that swamp. So it's a, it's the truth. All, all you can trace every economic calamity, by and large, without hyperbole, to some guy who graduated out of Harvard. Look, that guy Jonathan Gruber, the MIT guy or MIT. He's the one who said, people are stupid. I can sell them Obamacare, right? People should go look up Jonathan Gruber. And there's a great YouTube interview with Jonathan Gruber and Trey Gowdy. It's quite amazing. And here's a professor at MIT who should have been fired. He called people stupid. He knew Obamacare was garbage. And he yet, he sold it through.
1: Oh, uh, oh, uh, we got super chats. Uh, shout out to T. West, for right out of super chat. He said, raw interview, this is what I'm here for. Word. I hope the chat is enjoying this. Hope the viewers are enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. This is this is epic. It's already epic. We're only an hour in. Um. Now, let's talk about what the Democrats tried to do to throw a monkey wrench in your event against the vaccines.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, going back to Livingston High School, uh, I went back to the the uh, the principal there. And the head of the science department, who have a very good relationship because several years ago, um, we got a bunch of the Livington High School students involved in some research I was doing in my company, which I'll talk about Cytosolve, to show how genetically engineered foods at the molecular level are different than organic foods. So I had a bunch of the students involved. I didn't have to because it was my way of giving back to my high school. And in fact, I put those five or six students as authors on a paper I wrote which is a great thing for them. Many of them got into some great schools. So I called up those, and, and they held a event there where we had a big public forum where I think it was a couple thousand, I think a thousand people showed up. Uh, 700 to a thousand people. It was a big event where we educated the public in New Jersey about uh, g- genetically engineered foods. You know, I didn't get paid a cent for it. I went back there. I did it as a public service uh, to New Jersey and Livingston, okay? So a couple of weeks ago, Hotep, I called Mark Stern, and Brian Carey, very nice guys. And I said, look, there's a vote coming up, as you guys know, in New Jersey. On uh, uh, it's We didn't know when it was coming up. Um, I would like to educate people. I said, what, I said, when I was a... By the way, the guy who called is my AP chemistry teacher, because I just reached out to him, Gerald Walker. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I, I said, look, I said, what is happening across this country is the scientific method is taking a backseat to scientific consensus. Mm. So what I mean by that is, you know, when I was in, in ninth or tenth grade, Mister Walker taught me the scientific method. Well, what is the scientific method? The scientific hypothesis, m- huh?
1: Hypothesis.
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: experiment, uh, conclusion, and then go, and then again. You me- go
0: around, you're right? So you you observe something in nature, an apple falls from the tree, and you say, oh, okay, my hypothesis is something, right? that the Earth has gravitation and pulls that apple down, right? And then you do an experiment, right, to test your hypothesis. You gather the data and you build a model. So let's say Newton built the model F, the force that the Earth pulls that apple or the force between two objects is G times M1 times M2 over R squared, right? So that was this, and then he tested it, tested it, tested it, and eventually it becomes Newton's law of gravitation, right? Right. Now, That is a scientific method. And once you have a law which explains what is happening, sometimes people try to go even deeper than the law and try to explain why it's happening. And that's called a theory, capital T, like the theory of relativity, or the theory of general relativity by Einstein was trying to explain the law of gravitation. And again, a theory is only as good as an experiment that breaks it, okay? But science is always recognizing that you have to do this process, right? That is the scientific method. And the scientific method doesn't give a damn about what color you are, whether you're black, white, how good looking you are, how much money you have. When you make that hypothesis, which uh, Richard Feynman called a guess, and Richard Feynman said, it doesn't matter what background you come from. If your guess is wrong, it's just wrong. You're wrong, okay? doesn't matter. What's beautiful about science doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat, Republican, what freaking opinions you have, right? In the... When Galileo, prior to when Galileo uh, made his discovery, the Catholic Church passed what's called the Edicts of the Council, Edicts of Tr- the Council of Trent, which said that anyone who comes against anything that says in the Bible will be considered a heretic. Right. right, right. That was, and those laws were used to basically vilify Galileo, because Galileo basically had all this enormous data showing that the earth goes around the sun not the sun goes around the earth
1: heliocentrism
0: heliocentrism right versus the geocentric concept right yep uh so he was vilified by using those edicts right well this past year chuck schumer a complete moron okay passed a bill is trying to get a bill through congress i mean these people are actual just evil people they have they're basically manipulators. Has a bill in Congress. I think it's called Bill 791. I may get the number wrong, which says that if anyone says anything against climate change, or, or more specifically, the government should not sponsor any discussion on climate change at all. Okay. Because there's scientific consensus that it's taking place. So no government agency could have conferences, debates, discourse on it. That is eeringly similar to the Council of Trent's edicts. Okay, it doesn't matter if ninety-nine percent of the world thinks the sun goes around the Earth. It doesn't matter if one—if you have the data, the opposite is true, and the evidence, that's the truth. It does—it's science is not about a, a, a vote. Okay, right. So that is where we're at, Hotep. We're at a point where politicians have replaced the scientific method with scientific consensus this is very very freaking dangerous on so many levels and in order to enforce scientific consensus what do they do they choke freedom so you choke freedom which means no more discourse right by choking freedom you can't have you can never uncover the truth because you basically violated the scientific method and when you don't get the truth you can never identify the real problem in a situation and you can never innovate the real solution you get a fake problem CO2 is a pollutant fake problem antibodies are the measure of immune health one single measurement and then you create a fake solution we got a the green new deal right we got a lower CO2 which is ridiculous you know what happens when the CO2 level goes below 220 parts per, whatever million or billion all life on earth dies okay so what we're living in is a bunch of educated, vulnerable elites who, are, who go to school today, who have a big debt, $200,000 in debt. They have to get A's, so they listen to whatever their professors say. And their professors are ass-sucking up to get government grants, so they're people-pleasers. So you have one ass-kissing to another level of ass-kissing. And these people are getting college degrees, know very little. They're vulnerable elites, as Dick Lindzen says. Okay, he's a a former emeritus professor at MIT. Meanwhile, the good news is that people actually know what's going on. Are everyday working people because they have common sense. The working person says this doesn't make sense. CO two is a pollutant. This does.